Good morning. Um, I'm, I'm Adam. I'm one of the elders here at uh, Huntington Community Church. I'm very excited to see some new faces here tonight. Uh, got to meet some parents. Glad you're here. Your children are here every week. Promise you, I know you're like, they just came. This is their first Sunday, but they actually come here when you're not here. So it's good. Uh, just want to encourage you with that. Last week, uh, we were in Matthew 8. Matthew 8, and I mentioned last week, this is really like part one of two, and so this is part two, and I could really preach Matthew 9 with the exact same um, outline that I had for Matthew 8, and, and, and so the big idea this morning is still this idea that, that Jesus has complete authority over all things, and, and that because of that, uh, he demands complete allegiance from all things, including us. Uh, so I could use that same outline and preach uh, Matthew 9, but I thought you guys would be like, I, I heard this one already. Um, and, and so I'm going to spin it a little bit because Matthew 9 is full of healings just like Matthew 8. And so what I want to do with Matthew 9 is still work under that, that big idea of, of Christ's authority over all things, and you'll see it today. Um, but, but spin it a little bit and, and allow us to see some spiritual implications. So um, turn with me to Matthew 9. And I, I need, I'm so encouraged at this passage this morning about healings, physical healings. Because I can't lift this arm like much above like my shoulder. I too played dodgeball on Friday. And I am not 20 anymore. And I am... Sore, my goodness! I think my—I don't even know if this works anymore, but it's—it's it's still attached. Uh, so I'm looking for Jesus to come and touch. We're going to read this morning of uh, of people just receiving healing. So I'm—I'm I'm praying, Lord, just touch my arm this morning. Um, Olivia also played Friday night. So my wife and I—we—we she's younger than me. She said so. She's not sore. Is what she's trying to imply, and um, and so we we actually played against each other. And so you can ask her later who got who out. Okay, so I'm gonna leave that there. We had to do marriage counseling Saturday because of Friday night. Um, so we come to Matthew nine, and again I'm just gonna read um, most of nine. Um, just leave a few verses to lead us into next week, and then we'll walk through some spiritual. Um, principles here of salvation so let me uh let me read starting in verse one and getting into a boat he crossed over and came to his own city the he hears jesus uh, and behold some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed and when jesus saw their faith he said to the paralytic take heart my son your sins are forgiven and behold some of the scribes said to themselves this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of, of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, 
but your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying out loud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He cast out demons by the prince of demons. Let's pray. Father, it's amazing just to read story after story where you, you were doing um, an incredible work, how you were healing, doing miracles, and Lord, we know that you are still uh, doing this today. And Lord, I pray as we unpack this passage, we will see the, the greatest need, the greatest healing that we will ever need is not a physical healing, but a spiritual healing. So Lord, I, I, I pray as, as we read earlier from Isaiah and as we've seen some of these um, um, prophecies come to fruition here, I pray that you would continue to open up ears, that we'd be able to hear, that, um, that eyes would continue to be open to see your wonder your splendor, and your majestic hand at work. And as Joe prayed earlier, I pray that you would change us, Lord. Give us new hearts this morning. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, this morning, what, what I want to do with this passage is I just want us to look at some principles. And, and so there's seven that I think, there's seven healings or seven... Um, Ministry moments here with Jesus, and so I just really want us to look at this idea that there's salvation principles within this passage of physical healings and um, the ministry of Jesus. Uh, and, and so let's walk through these different stories here and see these different principles of salvation for us. Uh, so the first one we see is found in verses 1 through 8, and it's this idea that salvation is our greatest need. 
And when we read this story of this paralytic, this is also found in Mark 2. Mark 2, it's a little bit longer. This is the story, maybe you're, you, might be, you might recognize it better from Mark chapter 2. It's, it's this idea where um, this man who was lame, uh, he had four friends that carried him on a mat, carried him up on top of this house. Jesus was inside this house teaching. Inside the house was a lot of people. It was crowded. They could not get their friend inside to Jesus. So they went up on the house, opened up part of the roof, and lowered their friend down in. And they just knew that if they could get their, their um, paralyzed friend to Jesus, that Jesus could heal his body. And, and so here we see this um, playing out Matthew's version. And uh, Jesus sees their faith in verse 2. And he says um, to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, I want you to put yourself in this story. You're one of the friends. You've, you, you've cared your friend. Um, maybe it's somebody you've cared for for years. You, you carry him up on the roof knowing Jesus can heal his body. You do some work. You destroy this guy's house by digging in to the roof. You lower your friend down with three of your friends. And you're just like, this is the moment um, my friend's going to walk today. And Jesus sees, and this is interesting, says he sees their faith. He sees the faith of all five men. Um, and he looks at the lame man and he says, your sins are forgiven. Now imagine you're on the top of that house and you've done all this work and, and you're like, wait, what did he just say? Your, your, your sins are forgiven? Um, and, and okay, Jesus, that's great, but what about, you know, what about his, you know, his lameness? And Jesus is trying to show us here this, there's a principle for our salvation here. Um, that our greatest need is a spiritual change, not a physical change. And, and this, is, this is something that Jesus is trying to set up with, you know, he's, he's coming teaching about the kingdom of God. And he's saying, like, you, you really need something to change inside. That your sins need to be forgiven. And um, this, this causes a... a um, a ruckus, the, uh, the Pharisees, the scribes that are there, are upset with Jesus. Um, how in the world can this man forgive anyone's sin? Only God can forgive someone's sin. And Jesus says, okay, I'm just going to make a point for everybody here today. Uh, and, and so, and, and now you think about the logic here that Jesus is saying, which is easier, to say to someone your sins are forgiven or to make this lame man walk? I can go to any of you and say, hey, your sins are forgiven. And you really wouldn't know if your sins are forgiven until you die and you meet the Lord. But if there's a paralyzed man here who is lame, and I say to him, get up and walk, and he doesn't get up and walk, you know which one, from our perspective, is, is a greater deal. And so he, 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 goes, he, he says, okay, and if you're just doubting my power to forgive sins, that I have, a, I have that kind of authority, let me just go ahead and do this. And he says to the lame man, get up and walk, and he walks. And the crowds were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. So the first thing we see here is our greatest need in this life is not stuff. It's not uh, a physical healing. The greatest need is salvation. That is your greatest need today. And I don't know where you are in your journey in this life. But your greatest need today is salvation. It's not materials. It's not a better job. It's not a spouse. It's not children. It's no kind of materials. It's that Jesus would save you. That is the greatest thing. Uh, that is uh, just the greatest miracle that he can do in our lives today is to save us. And so he sets us up here. From This first one is very clear. Um, what he's trying to do, he's trying to show us that, that our greatest need is salvation. Then we have the second principle that we see here is that salvation is for everyone. Uh, in Matthew um, 
9, verses 9 through 13, um, we could see, uh, this is interesting here, because here's the gospel of Matthew with Matthew um, writing about himself here. And so he goes third person. Um, he could have easily said in verse 9, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw me. Um, uh, you know, I was setting, a, I was a tax collector sitting at a tax booth, but he's, he's being humble here, I think, and he's just going third person. Um, and um, we see where Jesus finds Matthew. Now, earlier in Matthew's gospel, we see him finding other disciples. Uh, those guys were all fishermen. But here, Matthew's not a, a fisherman. He, he is a tax collector. We need to understand a little bit about first century Jewish life to understand this principle. Um, at this time, the Romans basically um, controlled Israel. Uh, and so the Jews were slaves in a sense. They were kind of like, you had some freedoms, but don't try to rise up. You'll be reminded that Rome oppresses you. But you can do your Jewish thing. Uh, as long as you give us money, you can practice your religion. And so Jews would pay a tax to Rome. And so what would happen is, is that Rome would appoint these Jewish people to be tax collectors. And so Matthew was a Jew, um, but he also worked for Rome. And so the Jews did not like these guys. Uh, and so what, what the tax collectors would do is they would say, let's say you owe me $10. Um, let's say you owe Rome $10, but I'm going to charge you $15. I'm going to give Rome $10. I'm going to keep five for myself. And, and so the Jews really did not like these tax collectors because they were Jews, but they were working for Romans, and they were continued to oppress their Jewish uh, um, kindred. And so Matthew was a tax collector, and I love what Jesus is teaching us here, that within those inner 12 men, you have some good old Jewish people, but then you have a tax collector. And I, and I love this. And I can imagine just what, after um, Jesus calls Matthew to be a part of the 12, just, you know, maybe John, or probably Peter, let's be honest. Peter sees Matthew coming and being a part of the 12. He's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What's he doing here with us? We don't like his type. We don't want him here. And so I think Jesus is teaching us a principle here. Um, about who can be in the kingdom of God. That he's saying no matter how bad you've been, no matter what you've done, everybody is welcome to the kingdom of God. It's a matter of repentance. It doesn't matter about your past. And the tax collectors, they would cheat their fellow um, Jews. But even if, uh, even if you have a past of stealing, um, no matter what your past has been, uh, Jesus says my, that my grace is sufficient for you, that I can, I can heal any, any sin, no matter how far you've been, um, you, you can be a part of this. And um, again, the Pharisees have problems with this. They, they see what's going on. They're saying, how, how can this man, if he's so righteous, why would he be sitting with tax collectors and sinners? And that should show you how bad tax collectors are. They're not even listed as sinners. They have their own category. And, and, and so here, the Pharisees don't like this. The disciples may have not liked this either, that Jesus is bringing tax collectors in um, to this inner circle. And Jesus, I, I love, he just very wisely says, I, I, th those who... Uh, who are well, don't need a physician. You know, you guys, you're, you're good. You're all righteous. You're, you're, you, you follow the laws already. You don't need, you don't need a physician. And, and really, they, they did. He was just making a shot at them. And, and then he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He tells them, go, go and learn what this means. Um, I love that phrase. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. 
Sacrifice says, look what I've done for you, God. Sacrifice says, look at all the things I've done for you. That's what the Pharisees were about. Look, God, look how righteous I am. Sacrifice says, look what I've done for you. And mercy says, look what you have done for me. That's what God wants us to understand. That we stop going, look at all the great things I've done for you, God. Surely you would find um, favor in me. And that you would understand, God, that, um, or that we would understand what God has done for us. That there is no way I can ever do enough good um, to be considered righteous. And so Jesus says, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And so Romans gives us some insight to this, that there actually are no righteous people in this world. No, not one. So he came for everyone. Um, there's no need to come to call the righteous, because there were no righteous and, and so here's this, this idea that, that a, a church should welcome everyone. Um, we should be all-inclusive, that it doesn't matter your past, that, that you're, you're welcome to, to be here. I, I think now churches have taken this a step too far, and, and they'll welcome everyone, but they'll also affirm everyone. And, and that's not what Jesus is teaching here, that he's saying... We're going to welcome everyone, and we're going to love you, um, that, that, that you, have, you have worth and value because God's created you, and I pray this is the kind of church that, 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 if, that if someone, the, the worst drug dealer from Huntington would walk in here, we would love them, that, that we'd say, we're so glad you are here this morning, but we wouldn't say, we are so thankful for the drugs you're, you're dealing to this community. You keep right on doing that. Um, that's, not what Christ, that's, not, that's not what Christ would want for them. I pray that this is the kind of church that, that we would welcome no matter what your past is. I pray that, you know, whether it's a, a drug user, a drug dealer, uh, a prostitution, uh, you, you name it. I, I pray that no matter who walks into this room, we don't go, why would you come here? You, you, you need to get your life right first, then come here. It would be an empty room, wouldn't it, if that was the way it worked? Because none of us got our life right first. My life still isn't right. I still have sin that the Lord is exposing to me, things that he's doing in my life. Um, and, and, and so the point here is that, that we need to invite everyone. It's not that we go, oh, you you, you can't be saved. You're too, you're too far gone. If they're too far gone, then we've got a small God. That their sin is too great. That even, even Almighty God can't reach down and save them. That's not what Scripture teaches us. That we need to invite everyone to be a part of this journey. The third principle that we see here um, from this third encounter is, is that the law is too weak to save. So in verses 14 through 17, we see that disciples of John come to Jesus, and, and they've got a little problem with Jesus. And, and, and they see what they're doing, and it's not matching up with what Jesus and his disciples are doing. They've got a problem. Uh, they, they, they come and they question Jesus, and, and they ask him, why are we fasting, and the Pharisees are fasting, but your disciples are not fasting? And Jesus, and he shares something that can be kind of confusing. Um, and he's, he goes into this idea of this wedding and the wedding guests and the bridegroom. And um, we need to understand Old Testament fasting. Old Testament fasting was about, uh, it was a time of just mourning. Uh, where you would, maybe it was like a death and you would fast over that loved one. Um, New Testament fasting is a little bit different. It's, it's looking back and looking forward. Um, and, and so Jesus here, because he's in this middle ground where there is this past, um, what, you know, like looking back, but yet he's with his disciples and um, he's still with them. And so he gives this idea of like a wedding. And he's, why would you mourn when the bridegroom is still here? And he gives two examples, two illustrations for us. 
which can also be confusing. He talks about who in the world would put a, a, a new patch, a new piece of garment, new cloth, on something old, on an old garment. Who in the, who in the right mind would put new wine and old wineskins? And, you know, we don't really come from either of these cultures anymore. You know, I don't know how many of you um, put, make your own wine and you use new wine. Like, you don't put new wine in old wineskins. I don't even have, I don't have a clue what that would be like. Or, or like this idea of an old material and using new cloth. I, I just would probably give it away and get a new one, right? Um, the idea here is that he's talking about the old covenant and the new covenant. That you don't mix this new covenant with the old covenant. The old covenant was this idea of, uh, of showing you that keeping this law was to reveal your sin, and it wasn't to make you righteous, but this idea of making sacrifices. And then this new covenant is about grace. And why in the world would you mix this with this? We, we, we're not going to keep, you know, if... if God is forgiving us and He's showing us His grace. We're not going to keep the ceremonial law. That, that's, it wasn't sufficient to save us. Um, that wasn't the point of it. And so He's saying here, like, in this moment, my guys aren't going to fast because I, I'm, I'm bringing in the new covenant. I'm bringing this in, and there's going to come a time where I, I will leave and they will fast again. But right now, the groom is here. And we're going to celebrate while the groom is here. Later, they will go back to fasting, but not right now. But regardless, even when they do go back to fasting, they're not going to mix in this old way with the new way. The old way is gone. The new way has come. And so salvation is not about the law. It was never meant to save us. It was meant to expose our sin. And so here Jesus is, is teaching us that the law was too weak to save. Uh, it was not powerful enough. And so Jesus is doing something that the law could not do. Uh, the fourth principle that we see is, uh, is that salvation is a free gift. And so um, in verses 18 through 22, we, we see this incredible encounter. So He's there with his disciples, and this is the same context um, with John's disciples. But a guy comes in and says, hey, my daughter um, has died. Will you come? And so as Jesus goes, leaves uh, his friends, and he goes to, to um, meet this little girl who had died, um, this lady in verse 20, she had suffered a discharge of blood for 12 years, comes up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. Now, Luke's version of this, Luke 8, gives us far more detail. In Luke's version of this, it says that she had spent all of her money, everything that she had, she spent on this physical healing, trying to um, help her get better. She had no money. And I love what Jesus does here, that, that he's teaching us that, that salvation is a free gift, that she spent all of her money for physical healing, but this, but this um, salvation that he offers to us, it's free for us. You, you, you don't earn it. You can't pay for it. Um, the kids in the room, like it's not from your parents, like your parents can't give this to you. It's by, it's by grace through faith. It's a free gift. It cost him his life. It cost us nothing. Um, the crazy thing is, is like a lot of us is we receive salvation by grace through faith. And then we operate like um, that we keep our faith by our works. You, you get what I'm saying? Like, like, we receive salvation by grace, but then we think, like, now I've got to do a bunch of things so that I don't lose my salvation. That, that's not how this works. It, if that was true, then you doing all the good works to keep your salvation would be justice, not grace. And so 
I love here that, that there's this principle that salvation is this free gift, that here's this lady, she's unclean. We talked about what that meant last week, that as someone who was unclean, and according to Levitical law, this woman who was bleeding, she would be considered unclean. So for the last 12 years, she had not been able to get near uh, the temple to worship. She was far from God. And here's her moment. She said, I want to be close to God. And she goes right up to Jesus, and she touches Jesus. And according to Levitical law, Jesus would have been unclean because this unclean lady touched someone who was clean. But yet, Jesus doesn't become unclean. He makes her clean. He not only, uh, um, and there's a play here on words, maybe he is um, saving her spiritually as well because he says, your faith has made you well, and instantly the woman was made well. So commentaries don't know, was Jesus talking about just her physical body being made well? Was it just that, or was there at least maybe her salvation was granted to her because of faith? Um, the only place in all of Matthew where we see Jesus actually forgiving sins is what is that first one that we read in, um, with, the, with the lame man. That's the only time in, in Matthew's gospel where we'll see an individual receiving forgiveness of sin. But here it might be implied that she's being um, saved as well because of her faith. Um, the fifth principle is that salvation uh, is about being raised from death to life. Now, we see that in the same little story here in verses 23 through 26. Um, that Jesus honors this man, um, his faith. Uh, he, you know, the girl's already dead, and, and Jesus, and he, so he leaves his daughter, uh, leaves the beginning of the funeral. Funerals at this time take days. Uh, and, and so uh, he at least leaves the beginning and, and just has faith, I'm going to go get Jesus. And brings Jesus to the funeral. We see that they're already, it's already started. The funeral's already started when Jesus gets there in verse 23. Uh, when they came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion. It's because they've already started. There was music. Um, the commotion could have been um, part of the, the fasting process. Could have been, you know, the morning. They were crying and... and um, Jesus steps in, and, and I want you to think about this. Put yourself a funeral today. You're in a funeral. It's already started. Man walks in and says, hey, the girl's not dead. She's just sleeping. I mean, a lot of us, one, we're like, who's that jerk that just came in and ruined this funeral, right? I mean, let's be real. That's insensitive. We're over here mourning and weeping. And you come in, and you're going to say something like that? And so you can imagine some of the crowd there, probably like, where's this guy get off saying this? And then he comes in, and you imagine disciples maybe. They're like, oh, man, like, who, who are we following? He, he's just going to say whatever he, he says and uh, whatever he wants. And he comes in, and, um, and the dad, you know, he's with the dad, so that gives him some, um, some credibility, uh, to, to being there, and then he comes over to her, and he touches her. And this is also important, that, that he took her by the hand. Um, again, um, according to the old covenant, he would be unclean, because the old covenant, you, if someone was dead, you couldn't touch them. You'd be, you'd be unclean. And... Um, and he could have. Now think of John's gospel and the story of Lazarus. He doesn't have to touch Lazarus, right? Remember, he just, he just says, Lazarus, get up. And Lazarus comes out. Why does he touch her? He's trying to show us something. Um, and so he touches this girl. He's trying to show his disciples that, that, that he's not bound by this old covenant. That there's this new covenant, that, that he's greater than. That's what the um, book of Hebrews taught us a couple years ago. 
We're walking through that. It was Jesus greater than all that old covenant. And he's reminding us here again. And then the principle is that the salvation's about that we were all dead. That's what we're learning from the story of Lazarus, that, that, that we were dead. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 teaches us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But yet Jesus comes to us and he touches us and he raises us from death to life. I think we forget that. I forget that truth, that I was dead. I, I, I think I was like kind of alive. I wasn't that bad. I hadn't done, you know, I've, I had never done these sins. I wasn't that bad. And Jesus says, no, you were dead. Because see, if I was kind of, you know, if I was just a little bit bad, if I was just you know, not fully dead, maybe I can, I can get myself better. You know, if I was just sick, not dead, if I was just sick, maybe if I, you know, took the right medicine, did the right things, I got better. Look what I've done. Jesus, no, you were dead. You couldn't do a single thing for you but sit there and rot. But I stepped into your life. And I breathed into you this new life. Has nothing to do with you. Has everything to do with me and my grace and my kindness and my mercy upon you. That's what he's teaching us here. This girl couldn't do anything. No one there could do anything. She was dead. And I think about his timing and all this. I mean... Even with this lady who was bleeding, like, he, he knew all this was going on. He, he could have, this little girl's life was in his hand. He could have had it in such a way where that man could have never come and got him because he could have kept his daughter alive. But yet he allowed her to die so that he could demonstrate his power. And he, even on his journey to meet this little girl, he knew, okay, in about 10 seconds, there's going to be a lady that touches me. You know, three, two, one. Oh, yep, there she was. I felt her. She touched my garment. And in Luke's gospel, Jesus makes mention that there's a crowd uh, around Jesus, and, and he says, who touched me? And in Luke's gospel, the disciples uh, say, what are you talking about? It's, it's a crowd. Everybody's touching you. And he goes, no, I felt power. Leave my body. But there's somebody here that knows who I am and trusting in me. That's the kind of God that we have who can raise death to life. And I pray that all of you have experienced a resurrection the sixth principle that we see is, is that uh, salvation gives us new eyes. In verses 27 through 31, we see Jesus encountered two blind men. And they cry out in verse 27, have mercy on us, son of David. They obviously know who he is. And this, if, if you've been journeying with us since the beginning of Matthew, we know that in chapter 1, this was significant, this phrase, son of David, because in chapter 1... Uh, Matthew's trying to build up that the king is coming, that the king is here. This baby is the king coming from the bloodline of David. So here, the fact that they say son of David is powerful. They're saying there was this one who was to come who was going to be in this line of David and is Jesus. And so they, these men understand that this is the Messiah and they call him son of David. And uh, he, he touched their eyes. And we see other accounts of him where he doesn't have to touch their eyes. And they wouldn't know anyways, right? They're blind. And, and yet he touches their eyes. And you imagine like for them just being touched. You know, they might jump back and 
and think like the son of David, the, the king of all kings is touching me. And he touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were open. This is why I love that, that here we see two blind men who can see Jesus better than the Pharisees and the scribes and the teacher of the law could see Jesus. They had eyes. They could see everything, and yet they were still blind to Jesus. But yet these two blind men had perfect vision. They, they could see Jesus. That's the son of, son of David. I don't know what he looks like, but that's the man. That's him right there. And yet the Pharisees could describe everything about him in great detail. But yet they were so blind. And I love how he, he tells them, he says, don't tell anybody about this. And they couldn't help it. They, he, he warns them, don't go tell anyone. And, and what do they do? They go out and they tell everybody. And the irony of this is Jesus demands us to go tell everybody. And what do we do? We don't tell anyone. This is crazy. That Jesus says, open up our eyes and go tell everybody what I've done for you. Like, oh, I don't know, they might make fun of me. Are you kidding me? What is our problem? Why do I go up to people? I'm like, oh, I better not tell them. They might make fun of me. They might not like me. I, I, I just hate being in middle school the rest of my life. That's what I feel like all the time. Like I'm in middle school trying to get, make friends. The last one we see, number seven, is that salvation um, begins with words of confession. In verses 32 through 34, we see this um, demon-oppressed man was a mute and was brought to Jesus. And um, when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And again, the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, he cast out demons by the prince of demons. So again, the Pharisees were blind. And what they're saying is, um, is that the reason the demon listened to him is because he's one of them. And, and so they, they, they recognize his voice. And so Jesus is a demon himself. And Jesus is showing us here that just like last week, he has authority not only over demons, but even over the devil, over Satan himself. That they're even in his hand. And that they only have so much authority on this earth. And I, and I love here that the mute man spoke. Andrew read in our call of worship this morning from Isaiah 35 and his this mute would sing for joy. And I, I pray that's what we're doing this morning, that once we couldn't say anything about Jesus, what he's done for us, but now he's touched us and where we sing for joy, the things he's done in our lives. And, and, and here this principle that, that um, salvation begins with words of confession. Um, that we must speak out. Romans 10, uh, 9 talks about this. That, that if we confess that Jesus is Lord, uh, we will be saved. And so salvation begins with us saying that. Like, Jesus, we, we know that we are not Lord, that we are not the King, that you are. And that we are sinners in need of a Savior. Uh, and, and so there's seven principles, and there's probably more, but here's seven principles that teach us something about salvation this morning. That, that Jesus has complete authority over all things. And just a reminder from last week that, that because um, Jesus has all authority, his, his authority is our security. His authority is our security. That we find rest in Him, that we don't have to be anxious and, 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 and um, depressed and worried because He has everything in control. 
you're tomorrow, and some of you are, maybe you're already freaking out about this week. There's so many things going on this week, and you're like, I just can't deal with this week. I'm just so stressed and worried. He, he, he's got your week in his hand. Your, your life is not isolated from his authority. He cares for you. He knows you. Like, like this woman who was bleeding comes up. Like he knew her name. He knew that. Okay, here she comes. Like even in a crowd, he knows the individual. And so even in this crowd this morning, he knows you intimately. He knows everything that your brain's thinking about right now, all the worries and concerns you have about the cares that you have in your life. We're taught to cast those cares upon Him. Why? Because He cares for you. That's the kind of King that we serve. That He knows His people, He knows those citizens intimately. Now, there's three types of people in this passage. I want to close this morning with you just meditating on where do you fit in. Where do you fit in in the story? We saw, um, first, we saw there's Pharisees that are bitter towards God. They just hate whatever he does. Just, I just can't stand him. Maybe that's you. Maybe, you, maybe you're, you've been reluctant, like your friend, like you're like, okay, you've asked me a thousand times to come to church and you've come today just to shut them up. And you're kind of bitter at God because somewhere in your past you were hurt. Maybe by church or maybe you felt that God didn't keep his end of the deal. Maybe he took your mom or dad or a loved one away from you. Something happened and you're just bitter at God. Is that where you are this morning? I, I promise you that if you would just have an open mind... He has not broken any promise to you. He, he can't break his promise. That, that maybe, maybe there's a misunderstanding. Maybe you held him to a standard that he never agreed to. So maybe just search your heart. If you're bitter at God this morning, search your heart. Give him another shot because he will keep his word. But maybe you held him to something that he never said that he would do. Or maybe you're more like the crowds. We see a few times here that the crowds are mentioned. And right now the crowds love Jesus. Oh, they marvel at him. Look at all the stuff he's doing. He's cool. He's hip, popular. We want to follow him. The crowds would follow Jesus. But yet when it got hard, they just started going away. Ah, it's too hard. No way am I following that guy. I might have to lose everything. Maybe that's you. You're just following Jesus right now because you're hoping that he's going to just keep doing the cool stuff. I just, I need, I need, I need, I need whatever that blank is for you. And you, and you just hope he keeps, keeps doing it. You're about to show. Um, he teaches us soon about this parable of the soil how the seed falls on different soils. And some people are just, once things get hard, you just leave. Maybe that's you. Just ask that you search your heart this morning. Why are you following Jesus? Why are you here this morning? Because you just want the stuff? Do you want the gifts or do you want the giver? Or are you the third, the third person in, in this passage? You're like Matthew and the disciples. You have your past, and yet, and as, now listen, tax collector was a good job. They made bank, all right? Today, it'd be like having that six-figure job, everything's going great. They had no problems. I mean, people didn't like them, but who, and they didn't care. But Matthew looked at Jesus and left, I mean, he just left all the stuff. He left his tax booth, just left. Follow Jesus. Is that you this morning? Are you willing to just leave it all? The wealth, what if he takes it all away from you today? 
What if you lose your job? What if your health goes downhill? Well, if he takes someone away from you, would you still follow him? Is he still good? Matthew's all about him. Matthew would be one of the guys that would lay down his life for Jesus. He'd literally die for Jesus. Now, most of us won't be faced with that. But will you? Would you be willing to lay it all down, risk it all, to follow this Jesus? I'm going to invite the band to come back up. And we're going to keep singing this morning about this Jesus, this King who is sovereign, good, and wise, who knows exactly what you're going through right now. He knows your greatest need. And maybe what you would say your greatest need is this morning might not be, might not be what he says your greatest need is this morning. But would you trust him? Would you trust that he is good, sovereign, and wise, and will meet you in your time of need? If so, I, I, I pray that you would just cling to him. If you're one of those other two, if you fit in those other two categories, I, I pray that, that the Holy Spirit is just working on you right now, that you would just repent and trust in Christ. So just listen to these lyrics that we sing. They're powerful. They talk about change. Talk about his grace and mercy and kindness. How we need him. Let me pray for us. Lord, I pray that you would continue to work in our hearts, that we would be a people who trust in you. That we know that our greatest need is a spiritual need. And Lord, you meet so many of our worldly wants. You've been so kind to us, Lord. I thank you for these people who I get to just partner in the gospel with. I pray that you'd give us a hunger for the city, but that it would not be uh, without a, a, a hunger for you. I pray, Lord, that we'd always have that order correct, that, that we would deeply desire you, and because we have that deep desire for you, that would force us to go across the street and talk to a, our neighbor, our co-workers, classmate. Lord, may we bow our knee to you, surrender it all and trust you. We'd count the cost like Matthew. And we'd trust you no matter what. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.